The Way BK podcast is dedicated to pursuing and promoting a true understanding of Jesus Christ and the transformation he provides for all who submit to him to live in a way that is pleasing to God as revealed in the Bible. Let's join our hosts as they discuss The Way. All right, so in 2 Samuel chapter 24, we have what is, uh, I think, one of the most uh, powerful poignant and easily overlooked stories in the life of David and really in the whole Bible. This story is set at the very end of David's story, at least in the the way the the author of 2 Samuel puts it together. Of course, with a lot of Bible stories, it's hard to tell the exact order and chronology of events sometimes. Sometimes it's pretty clear. Sometimes events, just like you tell stories and the events will get arranged in a way that tells the story you want to tell, maybe not necessarily in chronological order. Same thing here. Anyway, you read 2 Samuel 24, and it's the very last story we have in the book of Samuel about David. And um, it starts out with what seems pretty normal for a king to do, but with a man that we've gotten to know who's a man after God's heart, a man who, according to Acts chapter 13, fulfilled the purpose of God in his generation, doing all of God's will, the story's pretty concerning. And maybe even a little surprising. David orders a numbering of his people, really not just of the people in raw numbers, but really the fighting men. In other words, how big and strong is my army? How powerful am I really? When I go out to battle, am I going to win or am I going to lose? Now, to be fair, a lot of that lingo I'm putting in there. David doesn't explicitly say why he wanted the census, but that's why kings want censuses, is so they know how big their army is so that they can win. Even though Joab, his right-hand man, and oftentimes kind of foil and not exactly the best guy, even Joab said, oh, this is not a good idea. Don't do this. David does it anyways. Has Joab go out and do it anyways. But then after he does it, David realizes, like he so often would, he realizes how wrong he was. But the deed had been done. And actually, it seems like when you put together 2 Samuel 24 and 1 Chronicles 21, the two records of this story, it seems like maybe God used this occasion of sin on the part of David and his people to punish Israel, perhaps for other sins. They were going to be punished, whatever the case may be, because of this event. You can read about this in the book of Numbers, uh, that God didn't want his people taking a census like this. If they did, they were supposed to give very specific sacrifices Uh, whenever they would take a census. In other words, taking a census was not supposed to be a moment where they reflected on, hey, look how big and strong and powerful we are, but rather taking a numbering of the people, numbering how many soldiers, how many people, how many families we have, was supposed to be a moment for the Israelites to reflect on, man, look how good God has been to us. We're nothing, but look at what God is to us. Look at what he's done for us. They didn't do that in this case. So God, in 2 Samuel 24, sends his angel to come to David and he, um, even though David has admitted his sin, there's still punishment coming. God gives him three choices. You can see this whenever you get to uh, about verse 12 of 2 Samuel chapter 24. Uh, actually, in verse 13, it says, These are the choices. Do you want three years of famine to come on your land, to flee from your enemies for three months while they pursue you, or to have pestilence on your land for three days? David isn't even willing to choose. He says, listen, Let me fall on the mercies of God. I don't trust in men. Maybe he's saying, I'm I'm not going to pick any of these things. I'm not going to let anybody pick these things. Maybe he's kind of saying, I don't want to go to war or or whatever. But whatever the case may be, he relies on the mercies of God, which 
that is, while the beginning of the story is kind of like, wait a second, David, what are you doing? At this point, like, yeah, this is the David we know, a man who recognizes his flaws, a man who trusts in the Lord's mercies. Even though he threw himself at God's feet, punishment was still dealt out. For three days, the angel of the Lord wreaked havoc on uh, Israel, on the people. If you look in verse 15 of 2 Samuel 24, it says that 70,000 men died. Those same men that David was trusting on to go to war, killed in a matter of days. Uh, It's terrible. It was devastating. But God stays the hand of the angel whenever he comes to Jerusalem. And I want to read a little bit of the story because this is actually the real message of this uh, climactic, culminating story in the history of King David. In verse 18 of 2 Samuel 24, Gad, that was the prophet, the seer, came to David that day and said to him, Go up and set up an altar to the Lord on the threshing floor of Arana the Jebusite. David went up in obedience to Gad's command, just as the Lord had commanded him. Arana looked down and saw the king and his servants coming toward him. So he went out and paid homage to the king with his face to the ground. And Arana said, Why has my lord the king come to his servant? Arana's like, What is going on? I'm a nobody. You don't belong here. You shouldn't really be on my property. What's the deal? Of course, Arana had seen the angel of the Lord. I mean, he knew something was going on. What, what's the deal here? David replied, To buy the threshing floor from you in order to build an altar to the Lord so that the plague on the people may be halted. David here is interceding on behalf of the people. God's told him what to do to rescue the people from their their pain and their suffering and their death. David's going to do it. Great. Arana said to David, My lord the king may take whatever he wants and offer it. Uh, Here the oxen for a burnt offering and the threshing sledges and ox yokes for the wood. Your majesty Arana gives everything here to the king. Then he said to the king, May Yahweh your God accept you. So David says, I came to buy your threshing floor so I could offer sacrifices so we could stop this plague. Essentially so David could rectify the wrong he had done. Arana says, no, 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 no. You just take the stuff. I Look, just take it all. Take the animals. Take the wood, like the, the implements, farming implements I'm using that are made out of wood. Use those to burn the fire, to offer the sacrifice. It's all yours. Just take it. Great offer. Great man. But listen to what David says. And I think what he says right here in many ways encapsulates what's so great about David. For the past however long we've been doing the series on the life of David, the man after God's heart, the man who fulfilled the purpose of God in his generation, the man who did all God's will. What was it that really drove David? What was it that kept him? We looked at so many things. We looked at his humility, his courage, his faith, um, his friends, his attention to detail in the word of God, uh, coming back from his failures. There's so many things about David that put the puzzle pieces together to give him a heart that was really after God's, that was pursuing God, that was the kind of heart God's looking for in human beings, and the kind of heart that we need to be striving for if we're going to be pleasing God, if we're going to fulfill His purpose in our generation, if we're going to do all the things that He's commanded. But look at what David says here in this culminating story, which I have no doubt was put here at the end to help us see this is what tied all the rest of it together. This is what how David thought about his life and everything that he did, at least whenever he was thinking rightly and doing right. Listen to what he says, verse 24. The king answered Arana, No, I insist on buying it from you for a price, for I will not offer to the Lord my God that which costs me nothing. I will not offer to the Lord my God that which costs me nothing. David bought the threshing floor and the oxen for 20 ounces of silver. He built an altar to the Lord there and offered burnt offerings and fellowship offerings. Then the Lord was receptive to the prayer for the land 
and the plague on Israel ended. Why was David a good king? Why was he a good man? How did he live in such a way that pleased God, honored God, was a fulfillment of God's purposes in the world and was good for the people that God had entrusted him? What was it that made David all that? Like we said, there's so many good qualities that we see throughout the story of David and weaknesses that he had to overcome in pursuit of having that kind of heart and failures that he had when he went against that kind of mind and heart and spirit and attitude. But if there's one thing that that kind of connects all the dots of his humility and his faith and his courage and his godliness and his friendships and all the things that we've seen throughout his story, it's this. He understood this principle at the end of his life or at the end of the story at least. You don't give God that which costs you nothing. You give to God what costs you. You give to God what costs you. Living a life that pleases God is not something that's going to be particularly easy or always pleasant. Jesus would say it this way. If anyone wants to come after me, let him deny himself, take up his cross, and follow me. In other words, you're not going to be able to make it as a follower of Jesus if you're not willing to give that which costs. Your very self. The costliness of serving God is something that maybe I want to downplay sometimes. I'd rather it not cost me that much. I'd rather it be a little more pleasant, a little easier. I'd rather it be uh, painless. But that's not the way it works. It's not the way it works. And David understood that. If I'm going to serve my God, if I'm going to have a heart that really pleases him and honors him, I have to give my God that which costs me. What is this, what undergirds this, this mentality that I'm going to give what costs me? And, and think about that in your job. Are you giving in terms of your work life? Are you working in such a way that, that is for the Lord, as Colossians 3, and I think it's about verse 23 says? Are you working in a way that's, for lack of a better term, costly, where you're diligent, you're honest, you have integrity, You're not really working for the boss to please them, but you're working for God to honor him. What about in your marriage? Are you kind of half-hearted about that? Or, hey, I'll give as much as he gives, or I'll give as much as she gives, but that's it. No, David says, no, no, if we're going to have a heart for God, we've got to give what costs us, which means even when they aren't what they ought to be as a spouse, that's especially when I have to be who I need to be as a spouse, especially then in those moments. What about when it comes to your finances? Are you somebody who gives, yeah, 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 I'll give some to God, you know, I'll give a little to God? Or do you give in a way that costs you financially, that puts you in a bind, that maybe even runs a little risk for you because you're giving what costs? What about that pet sin that you've kind of preserved and nobody knows about it and you keep it to yourself and you don't let it bother? And I don't want, I've given you so many other things, God, just please let me have this one. God says, Are you just giving me this stuff that costs you nothing? Or are you going to take up your cross? Are you going to deny yourself? Are you going to really follow Jesus? How about it? To have a heart for God means that we understand this principle that you can't just give God your leftovers. You can't give God the little bits. You can't give God stuff that costs you nothing. 
the person who gives what really costs them something uh, has a couple of fundamental attitudes, mentalities, beliefs uh, about what their life is really all about that drives them. And we would do well to learn from David and learn from this example. Uh, First of all, the person who gives what really costs them, the person who has the right kind of heart for God that gives what costs them is somebody who's obedient. David didn't try to negotiate with God or talk God out of what he said. God said, okay, go do this. Even when Arana said, oh, my Lord, the king, you don't have to buy it. I'll just give it. David said, no, 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 don't stop. Mm -mm, No, God told me to come do this. I'm being obedient. Am I obedient? Um, What's that obedience driven by? Well, obedience is driven by faith. In many ways, obedience is the expression of the person who lives by faith. If you really believe in God, if you truly trust in God, if you're you're actually loyal to God, you're going to do what he says. But that's what it takes. It takes that kind of faith and faithfulness. And whether it was when he was out in those fields and the, the lion and the bear attacked the sheep, or whether it was whenever he was up against Goliath, or when it was when he confessed his sin when Nathan confronted him about Bathsheba, all the stories that we've seen in the life of David reflect a man who had deep faith and maybe even at times didn't have that deep of faith, but was constantly pursuing a deeper faith, a deeper loyalty, a stronger trust in God. If you want to be somebody who has the kind of heart that says, God, I'm giving you everything. I'm not holding anything back. we got to cultivate faith. Obedience, faith. And the last thing I'll say, here David is, a king, working a pretty lowly property deal with Arana. You know what I mean? I mean, he's shelling out cash to this this guy, who, by the way, isn't even actually an Israelite. The Jebusites were a a people group that were kind of absorbed in the city of Jerusalem and in Israel, but they're not really Israelites. And here, David, the king of this land who conquered the Jebusites, could have said, you know what, you're right, I conquered you people. I fought this battle long. No, David doesn't do that. He doesn't flex. He doesn't elevate himself. He doesn't think highly of himself. He humbles himself. Isn't that, frankly, what the whole story of the life of David has been? We talked about this before. The ways he thought about the lowly people in 1 Samuel 30 who were too tired to go to battle, and he said, hey, those guys deserve a share in the battle as well, or in the spoils of war as well. Uh, What about the way that he listened to Abigail in 1 Samuel 25? Instead of saying, get out of my way, woman, I got revenge to exact here. He listened and honored this godly woman who pled with him to show mercy. What about the humility showed before Saul, or the humility he showed in accepting the fact that he had done wrong and the penalties that he was facing in the Absalom story and beyond were a result of his sin. The thing that drove David's faith, that led to his obedience, that made him the kind of man that said, God, I'm giving you what really cost me something. The thing that undergirded it all was a deep sense of humility, that he was nothing apart from God and without God. That anything God called on him to do He should do it. He should obey. Anything God said must be true because he had faith in God. Humility. If I want to be a person who really, really gives myself to God, gives what really costs me to God, I've got to learn to humble myself and let that humility lead me to faith in God and let that faith produce true obedience.
And, and you might say, that sounds like a lot. And it is. I, I don't know what to tell you. It's a lot. I mean, that's the, kind of the point of this. I'm not going to give to God that which cost me nothing. This is kind of the summation of the story of David's life. He gave to God himself. He gave to God that which cost him something from beginning to end, whether it was out with those sheep or shepherding these sheep, the people of Israel. David gave to God that which really cost him. And I think if I'm not willing to do that, then it shows that I don't really think God is worth it. Do you ever have that? Sometimes you see the price tag on something and you think to yourself, oh no, I'm not paying that much. It's not worth it. Now, if it was cheap, I'd give that to have this thing. But there's a certain threshold where I'm not willing to pay that much because I don't think it's worth it. David realized that God was worth it. And every day that I don't give to God that which cost me something, whenever I kind of give God my leftovers, or I give God just enough, or I give God that which really costs me nothing, I'm saying that I don't really think God's worth it. And He is. He is worth it. David kind of forgot about that for a little bit. He thought having a bunch of men was what it was all about, not so much having God. But this man who had a heart for God, this man who learned throughout his life to accomplish the purpose of God in his generation and did all of God's will and shows us the way, ultimately learned to follow Jesus, the ultimate David, the one who ultimately did the purpose of God in all for all generations, the one who perfectly did God's will without any blemishes like David did. As we look to Jesus, we got to learn to see he's worth it. He's worth whatever the cost, whatever, and I've got to believe that. And as I see how worthy and how worth it he is, may it humble me. May it teach me to have faith in him and may it make me obey him, whatever he may call me to do. The aim of The Way BK is to share the gospel of Jesus Christ across Brooklyn and beyond. For more information or to contact us, please visit www.thewaybk.com.